said, though, today we're beginning a new series of messages called The Good Place, and at the risk of being predictable, here it goes. A doctor, lawyer, and politician walk into heaven. Yeah, that's already a joke, right? And they get to the pearly gates, and they're confronted by St. Peter, and St. Peter says, hey, all three of you all have been decent people, but there's one more test to get before you can go into heaven and so they say what's that and Peter says well you're going to have to answer a question of varying difficulty depending on how well you lived your life and so so Peter looks at the doctor and says we're going to start with you here's your question name the vessel that was sunk by an iceberg on its maiden voyage and I said oh well that, that's easy it was the Titanic Peter looks at the doctor and says very good that's correct welcome to heaven he turns and he looks at the lawyer and he says look You've been pretty good, but you were a little bit of an ambulance chaser at times in your career, so this question is going to be a little bit more difficult for you. How many people were on that boat? Luckily for the lawyer, he was a big Titanic fan. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was like his favorite uh, actor, and so he knew all about the Titanic. He said, well, there was about 1,500 people on the Titanic. Peter says, "That's, that's close enough. Come on in. Welcome to heaven. He looks at the politician and says, now you, you're going to have to name them all. There is a fascination in our culture with with heaven. Whether it's jokes, cultural references, names of TV shows, there's an undeniable fascination with with heaven. And and it's not just a religious thing, it's a a human thing. It it permeates our culture in so many different ways. Just think about our language and and the the phrases that we use uh, that that include heaven. Like like what do we call two things that go really well together, like peanut butter and jelly? We call them what? A match made in heaven. Um, or, or if somebody experiences something extraordinary and it's the experience of a lifetime, we might say that they have died and gone to heaven. If you did something really difficult for someone and you wanted them to know that, you might tell them that I had to move heaven and earth for you, right? There's a few more that are, are particular to the south and some of them make sense and some of them don't. I'm always confused about this one. Uh, for heaven's sake. I don't know if that's positive or negative. Like, I mean, because you'll hear somebody who is appalled by something, and they'll say, well, for heaven's sake. But then you'll hear somebody who's really happy for somebody, and they say, well, for heaven's sake. And so I don't know if it's positive or negative. I'm confused by that one. And then there's, there's things that stink to high heaven. And we know that's bad, right? But then there's in hog heaven, which is good, but hogs stink, so I'm kind of confused about that one too. But there's just there's this fascination with heaven. And, and musicians, they're kind of like the cultural poets uh, of our day. And there's all sorts of perspectives that we get from music about heaven. Like uh, Led Zeppelin, they, they were on a stairway to heaven. And ACDC, they were on a highway to hell. Um, Guns N' Roses made a song famous by Bob Dylan about knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. And then Bruno Mars, imagine this. Uh, Bruno Mars, made, somebody made him feel like he was locked out of heaven. That's got to be a terrible feeling, doesn't it? So here's the question. Where does this fascination come from? What is the driving fascination about our curiosity with heaven? Well, the easy answer is that the mortality rate's 100%. Right? The mortality rate is 100%. I hope, and I hope you're not just figuring that out for the first time right now. Like if, if you are, well, church is a pretty good place to figure that out. But, but the mortality rate is 100%. The truth is, is that we are certain there's going to be an end to this life. And so the question is, then what? What happens after this life? 
What, what happens next, and is it, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Should I look forward to it or not? How do, I, how do I know what's there? How do I know how to get there? And we know that people think about this. In fact, one study showed that, that on average, people think about death three to four times a month. And if you're a woman and you're married, that number is probably a little higher because you're not always thinking about your death. See, I didn't even have to explain that, and you all instantly knew what I was talking about. And that scares me. Because, like, all these shows about how to get away with murder and all those kind of, like, 90% of their viewership is married women. And, and my wife is one of those, and so I'm just telling you, if something happens, I want an autopsy, all right? There's a book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You've probably heard about it. And habit number two is this. It's begin with the end in mind. Covey in his book suggests that young people, specifically young people in their their late 20s, early 30s, that they think about what what you want said at your funeral. Like, what do you want said at your funeral? And then he says, and then you should back up all the way from, from the time of your funeral, however long you think you might live, back up all the way to right now and begin to live your life in, a, in such a way that what you want said will actually be said at your funeral. And so here's the question I want to start us with today. What do you think about when you think about heaven? What do you think about when you think about heaven? What comes to mind? What are the images that come to mind? Uh, what, how do those thoughts make you feel? How do those images make you feel? Do, do you feel excited? Do you feel worried? Do you have no emotional response at all? There's a lot of interest about heaven, but there's also a lot of misinformation out there about heaven, even confusion about heaven. Polls show that among Christians, many wonder if heaven is even a real physical place. Others consider what they know about heaven to be uninteresting and unrelatable and less appealing than this world. And in some degree, you can't fault people for thinking that because of the tangibility of this world. I mean, I can see and touch and feel this world. I can go visit places in this world, but heaven I can't see, I can't touch, I can't just go for a visit. And so here's the problem. I think the problem is not that we don't think about heaven enough. It's that we don't think enough about heaven. That that we don't think highly uh, uh, enough of heaven. That that heaven for most of us is not impressive. It's not inspiring to us. Most of us don't have a, a true picture of the realities of heaven. In fact, many of us, especially if you grew up in the church, we, we were sold a picture of heaven that wasn't very alluring, that wasn't very appealing, maybe even boring to us. I, I don't know what your thoughts are uh, when you think about heaven, but based on Zeppelin's uh, song, we, we think there's a stairway to heaven, right? And so maybe this is kind of the image that you think about when you think about the stairway to heaven. And I don't know if there's really a stairway there or not, but we're told there's, there's gates there. And so you're going you're gonna to approach gates, and we're told that they're in the clouds. And I don't know if they're floating or, or if they're not floating, but, but we're told there's, we, this is what we think about, right? And this might be a little controversial, but we're told in heaven that there are streets of gold. And my whole life I've always been told that, hey, we need to have good stewardship. We, we need to be good stewards of the things that God has given us. And so I always think about the streets of gold, and I think, is that really a good use of all that gold and wealth? And then I start thinking about this, and I know this is strange, but these are the thoughts I have. I start thinking that streets of gold might actually encourage vandalism. Like, there's probably a lot of potholes in the streets of, in, in the streets of heaven because people are trying to dig out the gold, right? I know, it's strange, but it's what I think about. Then we're told about mansions. We, we think there, there are mansions in heaven, and I know some people are pretty fired up about these mansions. But I know a lot of people who live in fairly sizable houses and they, they look forward to the, to the point in life where they can downsize. 
where there's less for them to take care of, where there's less rooms to dust and less, yards to, less yard to mow. But, but we're told there are going to be mansions in heaven. And, and, I, and I have questions about the style of mansion. Like, is it going to be, is it going to be like a mid-century uh, modern or, or like an old south style mansion? Or is it gothic European? Or is it a castle type mansion? That's kind of my preference. I want it to be a castle. Um, I, I don't know. But there are a lot of different cultures that, that God has to take into consideration when he's building these mansions for people. Then there's a, there's a, a throne in heaven. And the throne, we're told, is, is the throne that the Lamb sits on, which sounds strange, but we know that's a reference to Jesus. And, and we're told that there are going to be ga- people gathered all around this throne, and, which is bothersome for some of us. Because one, one of the benefits of, of the COVID-19 pandemic was, was this, is that everyone stayed six feet apart. When you were at the grocery store, at the Dollar General, or at, at McDonald's, or whatever, people stood farther apart from you in the line, right? I mean, anybody ever been to Walmart and you're checking out? And that person that's got all of their groceries right behind you, they are just like standing right on the back of your neck. And you can feel their breath. And you're just like, please back up. Like anybody else that bothered, okay, a few of you, you all are much better people than I am. Because I, I want to turn around and tell people like, back up. I can smell your breath. I know what you had for breakfast. It's, it's, but w- during COVID-19, everybody stayed a, a farther apart. And it was one of the unintended benefits. And it's honestly, it's one of the things that I hoped would stick around. Uh, after COVID, but but these people they're 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 all around the throne, and they're not just gathered there; they're going to be worshiping, and that's a whole other idea and a whole other problem for for some people. Because just think about this: we all have our individual preferences about the style of worship that we like, right? We all have our individual preferences when it comes to what kind of songs we we like about worship. You have your preferences, and I have my preferences. And so, what style is it going to be in heaven? I've heard some of you that have a have a distaste for a specific uh, style, re- refer to those songs as 7-Eleven so- songs. You sing the same seven words 11 times. Um, and I get that. It has some merit to it. But, but think about this. We're told in heaven that the seraphim, they fly around the throne of heaven and they sing these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's it. Eight words. They sing those same eight words for all of eternity. Like, they don't get to throw in an extra verse or another bridge or anything like that. It's just those eight words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we thought singing, uh, he's a good, good father, over and over again was repetitive, right? But some of you, your, your concern isn't even about the style. You're just thinking that if heaven is a nonstop worship service, that, that sounds more like hell than heaven. Especially when you add all the multitudes of people around that, right? It's like Disney without the rides. And it's just like, what is our picture of heaven? But this is it. This is our picture of heaven brought to you by our culture. And so no wonder we, we, we don't have this real desire to go to this place. And, and this is the problem. Some of us are encouraged by the idea that, that we're going to be there. Like if, if our family has been believers, we're going to be there for all of eternity. We're going to spend forever with our family. And then some of us are like, oh, we're going to spend forever with our family. All jokes aside, most of us have a, a clear and more compelling picture of our next vacation or of our retirement than we do of heaven. Of where we will spend one week out of the summer or, or where we will spend the, the last 15 to 20 years of our lives. The truth is, is as a result of that, we look, more, we look forward more to those things and we're better prepared for those things than we are for eternity in heaven. So here's what I want to do with our remaining time this morning. I want, I want to give us a framework for how the Bible talks about heaven. 
And, and we're, it's just a framework, and at the end of the day, you might have more questions than you have answers, but that's okay. We got uh, three weeks in this series, and so hopefully by the end of this series, we'll have answered those questions. But we're going to begin today with three conversations that reveal Jesus' view of the realities of heaven. It's how, how he talked about the realities. And, and the first conversation that takes place that we're going to look at is, is with Jesus and two criminals who are being crucified next to him in Luke uh, chapter 19. Or Luke, excuse me, Luke 23 tells us this. It says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you are the Messiah, aren't you? Prove it by saving yourself. And then I always love that he added this. And us too while you're at it. Like if you're going to save yourself, go ahead and save us too, right? But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first reality is this, is that Jesus talks about a place where people who believe in him go after they die. Excuse me. And this is, this is probably the most common uh, idea of heaven. It, that there's a place that we go after we die. But really, this is just the first reality. For the repentant criminal, Jesus with confidence assures him that paradise was as close to him as this afternoon. The second conversation that Jesus has is with his disciples. And he, he, he's getting ready to leave earth and, and they're troubled about this. They're, they're terrified about this. And Jesus says this. He says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. This is the second reality of heaven, that Jesus isn't talking about the same place that you go when you die. He's talking about where Jesus' followers will spend all of eternity. He's talking about coming back to get people and taking them to a place that is still being prepared. And so the second reality is this, is that there is a future heaven. And then the third conversation with Jesus, and, and he reveals a different reality about heaven. And the conversation was about prayer, and the disciples were asking Jesus how we should pray. And so Jesus says this, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, this third reality is, is more about a way that we can experience or participate in heaven here and now. It's less about a place where you go after you die and more about impacting this place and, and lives with the values of the kingdom of heaven. Experiencing heaven in this life, not just the afterlife. And so there are three distinct realities. And Jesus talked about heaven in these distinct rea realities and basically to kind of summarize them, they're, they're like this. is that You can experience heaven now in another place. That, that's the present heaven. It's, it's the place where you go when you die. It, it's, heaven is here at another time. This is the place where we'll spend all of eternity. And finally, heaven is here and now in another way. We can experience it in, in, in another way. And so one of the things that's most important when we think about this is that Jesus is speaking in, in the context of, of, of a Hebrew's understanding of time. One of the things that, that often gets missed or left out when we approach the scriptures is that, is that Jesus is speaking to a very distinctly Jewish culture to a Hebrew culture and, and Jesus and all of the Old Testament writers and prophets and even most of the New Testament writers they all spoke about time in the same way they divided time into two things in fact in Matthew 12 32 Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees and, and he's basically telling them that they will they will have consequences and, and their actions will have consequences and they won't be able to escape 
those consequences, and he says, in this age or in the age to come. He divides time into two pieces. He says, you won't be able to escape those consequences in this age or in the age to come. And now we think about life in terms of, of, of this life and the afterlife, right? That's how we kind of think of time, this life, the afterlife. But they thought bigger than that, and they thought in a bigger context than that. They thought in, the terms, of, they thought in terms of two ages. There was this age and the age to come. And, and in this age, there was a present heaven and a present earth. And, and it was all about, you know, this present heaven is separate from, from the present earth. This, this present heaven is now. It's where you go when you die. It, it's now in another place. And this present earth, that's obviously where we're at right now, isn't it? But then they've also thought about the age to come. And Jesus described the age to come as, as a new heaven and a new earth. Some of you might be wondering why I, I said that heaven is here in another time. And see heaven, see heaven that's here, this new heaven and new earth, that, that's... We're going to talk about that in two weeks, but, but Scripture says that it's actually going to descend out of the sky, and, and, and we're, going, we're going to experience a new heaven and a new earth as these two things converge together. They, there will be a change from this age and the age to come. And, and in this verse in Matthew 12, 32, where Jesus is talking about this age and the age to come, he uses a very specific Greek word, and it's the Greek word aeon, or ion. And the word aeon, or ion, it, it doesn't matter how you say it, it's an interesting word for that time because it's, it's not necessarily the, the, a, a specific time. It's more of a period of time. It's, it's more like an indeterminate amount of time. Like you might say, like, in my childhood. That, that would be a, a use of that word. But it wasn't the most common. It wasn't the most common word that, that Jesus could have used in that context that he used it in. There's at least two other Greek words that Jesus could have used that, that his audience would have been more familiar with. The words kairos and, and chronos. Kairos is, is more of a season of time, and, and these words were way more common in, in that day, and, and in that culture, and they, his audience would have expected him to use that word. And I suspect, I wasn't there, you can ask Mike, he probably was, but I, I suspect that the reason Jesus used this word ion is because this word was also the name of a Roman deity. It was also the name of a Roman god from, from the Hellenistic period, which was from about 300 years before Jesus. And, and during that time, that time was dominated by pagan worship. And, and all of these Greek gods were worshipped even in, in the midst of Roman culture. But, but Ion, or Aeon, this was one of the more prominent Roman deities. And, and he was known for being the god of the ages. And he was commonly referred to as Father, or the King of the Universe, or the God of Gods. Or the Lord of Lords. Sound familiar? The, the symbolism is, is unbelievable between Ion and, and Jesus. Uh, some of you know about the Zodiac, and I'm not gonna, don't worry, I'm not going to start preaching about the astrology. But, but the Zodiac represents the belt around heaven and earth. And, and there's, so there's this belt, and it's got 12 signs of the Zodiac. And, and in, a, in Greek mythology, Ion is standing in the middle of that belt. As if to say, hey, I am the center of the universe. This belt goes all around the heavens and the earth, and he stands in the middle of it, claiming that he is the center of the universe. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he uses this word, and he claims to be the ultimate authority over all of time, in, in this age, in this world, in this life, and in the one to come. As the pagan gods were replaced, as the Roman Empire embraced Christianity as, as the national religion of the empire, and Aeon was, was one of the gods that was replaced by Jesus. 
And Jesus says that, that he is the centerpiece, that he is the God of all time. And, and the centerpiece of Jesus' message, really, it goes like this. You, you are, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, familiar with church at all, you've no doubt heard this verse. For God so loved the world, right? In, in, meaning, in this age and in the age to come, he loved the world and he created the present earth and all that was in it. And Jesus, speaking of himself, he said that whoever would believe in me, anyone who would place their trust in me, they would not be lost for all of time. They would not die, but that they would gain everlasting or eternal life. He claimed to be able to give people eternal life. And this is why understanding what you have placed your faith in, is, and, and how much trust and belief do you really have in that, it, this is why, why it's, it's so important for us to, to understand the, the actual realities of, about heaven. And, and don't miss this, because this sort of sets up the, the, this whole series. Don't miss this statement. Your perspective of heaven impacts how you live life on earth. All right? Your perspective, what, how you think about heaven now, impacts how you live your life on this earth now. And conversely, how you live on earth impacts how you will experience heaven. Here's the truth, that there is a principle that lies beneath these two statements that is at work in your life. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you like it or not, there, there's a principle that is true. And it's this, is that we, we live toward what we look forward to in life. We live toward what we look forward to in life. If you're thinking about getting married, um, hopefully you're sort of getting your life together and, and you're trying to get out of debt and, and you've got a stable job and you're just trying to do things that would, that would make you a, a, a contributing member to a relationship, right? And, and maybe you've done that and, and you've, you found that person and, and you're just looking forward to getting married and it impacts your behavior along the way. You're, you're doing all of these things to, to make sure that your, your relationship, that your marriage is going to be successful. Some of you are really looking forward to that next promotion in life. And you're trying to climb the ladder, and this next step is going to be a big one for you. And so, so you're trying to be as diligent as you can. You're, you're trying to, to, to take on the most responsibility that, that's possible for you to take on at work. And you're just trying to, to, to become noticed, and you're trying to help out in, in all of these other ways. Most of them that you're not getting paid for. Just so that you can be in the best possible position when that promotion time comes. It impact, what you look forward to impacts what you live toward. And it's not a bad thing, all right? I'm just telling you, it, it impacts the way that you live life now. Some of us, you know what we're looking forward to? We're looking to forward to our next vacation. And I'll just say this, it's confession time for me. Life is busy, right? And there's a lot of mundane that, that happens all the time, but there's also a lot of hectic, hecticness that happens in our schedule. And it's like some weeks it just feels like there's something every, every night. And it's just like, you know, it's easy to be on vacation and go, you know, I need something to look forward to. So let's go ahead and plan our next vacation. Some of you, you're in a place where, where you're looking forward to retirement. And it's getting closer and closer and closer for you. And you've been preparing for a really long time. But now you're, now you're really close. And so you're trying to get all of your ducks in a row. And, you, and you're just asking the question, how much longer am I really going to have to work? How much more do I have to do to get to the place where I can really just enjoy this season of life the, the way that I want to? Here, here's the point. The point is this, is that what you look forward to impacts and dictates how you're living now. And, and the more that you look forward to something, the more you live in that direction, the more energy, the more effort, the, the, the more your behaviors are leveraged in that direction. Some of you have lived towards something for a really long time, and then maybe you achieved it. And you spent a bunch of time investing in, in that. And when you arrived, you arrived only to figure out that all the stuff that you invested, all the time and energy and effort that you put toward that, it wasn't worth it. 
I read an article uh, recently about a speech uh, of a high school valedictorian. He talked about how at the end of his junior year, he found out that he was in the running to be valedictorian. And so he decided he was going to win this award. And so he, he, he gave up everything. He, 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 uh, he, he did nothing fun over the summer. He just studied and he was diligent. And, and he sacrificed all of his relationships. And, and he was so determined and committed to win this award. And guess what? He won. He won the award. He was valedictorian. And he said it felt amazing for 15 seconds. And on the 16th second, he said it dawned on him that it wasn't worth it. Honestly, that he regretted, he regretted the fun that he'd missed with his friends over the summer. He regretted economizing his friendships. He missed so much more than this award could give back to him. This is why the Apostle Paul, when, when he was writing to the church in, in Colossae, he said this. He said, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, listen to what he says here. He says, what you need to do is forget everything else. You need to forget about everything else and you need to set your sights on the realities of heaven because this is where your ultimate hope is. It's in the realities of heaven where, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. This is the place where God has created and he's created something for you there. So Paul says, he says, set your sights not on this world. In fact, he goes on, he says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Because if we think about too much about the things of earth, it gets depressing, doesn't it? Because let's just face it, life is difficult, life is hard. We've kind of normalized that. We, we say, well, that's just the way life is, but, but, and it might be just the way that life is, but it doesn't make it any less challenging. Life is difficult. You know, marriage is difficult. Parenting is hard work. Relationships are hard work. Work is work, right? There's a reason it's called that. But there's a reality that's been set before you. And if you start setting your mind on it, it changes the way that you feel about this life. So Paul says, think about the things of heaven in such a way that you set your mind and your heart that they are fixated on what is to come in the next life. Then he goes on to say, he says, you died to this life. That's, that's what you did when, when, when you decided to follow Jesus. You said, oh, there's something better. There's something better beyond this life. And so I'm going to die to this life. And, and he says, your real life, the life that is hidden with Christ and with God, when, when Christ who is your life, he holds the key to your real life. He says, that, that everlasting life that he's promised you, when it's revealed to the whole world, you will share and it's glory. In other words, when this new heaven and this new earth come together, this new reality sets in, if you're a follower of Christ, you will share in the glory of that. See, this is sort of like the Stephen Covey thing, where he says, think about the, uh, the end of your life and what do you want it to be known for? But it's way bigger than that. It, it's way beyond that. Don't just think about the end of your life. Think, think beyond that to, to eternity. Think about what's been promised to you with this everlasting life, which means an abundant amount of life. Which is like the, the most unlimited amount of, of life that's been promised to you. He says, look, look toward that because it'll change the way that you live this life. Paul says, fix your mind on heaven. Because that's what you were destined for. When, when I was younger, my grandfather, my, my mom's dad, he was a preacher. And uh, when we would go over to their house for the weekend, he would, he would do these devotionals for us. It didn't matter if, if there was one grandchild or, or all the grandchildren were there. He would set us around the breakfast table and he would read us these devotions that were designed for kids. And, and uh, there, there would always be like a, a story that he would read. It was a kid's story and then there would be a, a, you know, for an everyday story, something applicable. And then there would be a Bible verse that would be included. And then at the bottom there was this key. And, and the, a lot of times the game was to try and guess what the key was. And so I'm the youngest grandchild on that side of the family, which also makes me the favorite grandchild. Um, 
And most days, we would endure my grandfather reading us these devotionals. But sometimes he would make it a game, and, and there would be something to win. And if you could guess the key, you, you would win something valuable, which was few and far between because my grandfather was also notoriously cheap, okay? And, and one day, I remember, I remember me and one of my cousins, uh, the next closest to, to me in age, we were at their house, and, and he was just reading us this devotional, and both of us were just like, we're over this, Grandpa. Like, we're, we're too old for you to read to us. We, we've just kind of checked out, and we're going we're gonna to eat our cereal and, and hopefully you're not going to ask us anything too difficult, and at the end you're going to pray and we'll be done and we'll get on with the rest of our day. And that was kind of our mentality, and we're just sitting there, both of us just daydreaming about what fun things we we're going to go do with Grandma. But he got to the end of his little devotional and he pulled out a dollar, a dollar bill, and I thought, well, I'm glad I really didn't listen because a dollar's not much. Grandma's going to spend way more than that on us here in a little bit. So, so he says, what could you buy with a dollar? And my cousin and I, neither one of us really responded. We just kind of sat there with these blank stares, obvious that we had not been paying attention to this whole story. And he said, all right, well, what about $10? What about $10? What, what, would, what could you buy with $10? And we're still thinking, eh, it's not that much. Um, you got my attention a little bit, but, but not much. But then my grandfather did something that I had never seen him do before. He pulls a $100 bill out of his wallet, and he says, okay, if I gave you $100, what could you buy with it? And now I'm thinking, man, I wish I'd been paying attention. Like, what was that story about? And I'm just kind of racking my brain and thinking and thinking and thinking. And, and I'm just trying to figure out. And he says, and so he just moves on. He says, well, what about $1,000 or, or $10,000 or $100,000? And I was just like, hey, can we go back to that $100? Like, how can I get that? I want to know how I'm, I can get that. And he said, what if you, what if you had a million dollars? What would you do with it? Well, how would you spend it? And so we talked about that, which was kind of fun, and, and like, I know we still have these conversations today, you know, if, if we were to win the lottery, what would we spend that money on, right? It's kind of fun to think about. But then my grandfather, he said this, he said, if we had a tree in the backyard that money could grow on, and we just had an unlimited amount of money, what would you buy? And, and then we talked about that for a little bit, but then he said this, and I've never forgotten this, he said, if you had an unlimited amount of money, what would $100 be? What would it be? Nothing, right? You just give it away. You would give it away like it's not that big of a deal. You just give it away. And then he said this. He said, this is like life. We have an unlimited amount of life in Jesus. What's a hundred when, when you have an unlimited amount that you could give away? You just give it away, wouldn't you? A couple years ago, my grandpa died. And at his funeral we said um one, one of the, it was actually one of my oldest cousins said this and i used it in the funeral because i thought it was i thought it was appropriate he said my grandpa spent his entire adult life telling people about heaven and today he gets to enjoy the realities of heaven my grandfather truth is he he made he lived a long life he had a good life and he lived he, he had a large impact on the lives of people around him Literally thousands of people. There were, there were places that we could go. My grandma always joked that we, she could go to the, to the, the most remote island uh, anywhere in the world. And some native of that island would get, would get off a boat as soon as she got there and come up and say, Hey, hey Mrs. Jones, how's Brother Jones doing? Like he, just, he, he had an impact. He had an influence with people. And he had that because he believed. Let me rephrase that. Not just because he believed, but because he acted and lived his life for what awaited him in eternity. For what awaited him, because he believed and he acted that what awaited him in eternity was abundantly more than he could ever imagine. 
And because he believed in the realities of heaven, it changed the way that he lived his life on earth. Here's the question I want to leave you with today as we, as we wrap up. What are, you most for, what are you most looking forward to in life? What's the thing that you look forward to the most in life? Because the thing that you're looking forward to the most, you're living toward the most. And you owe it to yourself to make sure that, that it's something worthy of devoting your entire life to. Because make no mistake about it, it's dictating, it is determining how you live your life now. And, and the thing is, is that what you're looking forward to, what you're looking forward to the most, you need to make sure, you need to make sure it's big enough. You need to make sure it's worth it. You need to make sure it's something that you were designed to experience. And if you ask me, that's heaven. That's what we were designed to experience. What are you looking forward to the most? Because what you look forward to the most will determine how you live this life. And I hope that you're living this life as if this is not the, this is not it. That there is something abundantly greater waiting for us. And it's eternity with Jesus. Let me pray for us.